So why don't you take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 20. Let's get into the Word. Finally, Genesis chapter 20. With my slowness and then vacation and quarantine in the middle, we were in Genesis 19 for two months. Now we'll do um, one whole chapter in one sermon. Uh, The story of Abraham continues. We are done with Sodom. We are done with Lot. But we are not done with Abraham. God's not done with Abraham. Uh, There has yet been no resolution to the story of Abraham. No fulfillment. Uh, We're almost there next week. But not yet. First this. First chapter 20. God has made promises. Grand and glorious promises. God has not yet delivered on those promises. And it has been decades. It has been 24 years. That's a long time. Uh, Six months feels like a really long time ago right now. Uh, Consider 24 years. Think back to 1996 and then waiting until 2020. Sometimes it seems like God is slow. What do you do when it seems like God is slow? What do you do when it seems like you have been waiting maybe for 24 years? Maybe there are things that you have been praying for 24 years. Uh, and, And why is God Sometimes seemingly quite slow to perform his promises. Why 25 years from promise to fulfillment for Abraham? I think Genesis 20 can help give us some answers. God is working always and he is working purposefully always. So so what is his purpose here? What is the point of this story? Well, quite simply, just up front, this story is here to remind you again that God preserves his promises and his people. That's what we're doing today. And God preserves his people through the performing of his promises. And he does it in spite of, and actually sometimes through, the seemingly great obstacles to the fulfilling of those promises. God has made Abraham grand and glorious promises. Church, God has made you grand and glorious promises. Can you wait? Uh, Will you trust him to keep those promises. And what do you do when it seems like there are insurmountable obstacles to the keeping of those promises? What do you do when you are the cause of the seemingly insurmountable obstacles to the keeping of those promises? Because we're back to not so good Abraham here. We're back to failing to trust the Lord Abraham. Abraham has looked pretty good for the last three chapters. He's performed admirably. Now he fails amazingly. What's going to happen to the promise? That's, that's the question. That's the tension. There's been a pattern in this story. Remember, we've seen this before. Abraham has done this same thing in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we were given the promise, and then immediately the promise was jeopardized by Abraham's sin. Here in chapter 20, we again have the promise jeopardized by Abraham's same sin. But the very next chapter, 21, we have the promise finally fulfilled in spite of Abraham's sin. So God is going to great lengths to demonstrate to you his faithfulness, to demonstrate to you that the fulfillment of his promises is dependent upon him and not you. Abraham is not the hero of this story. We are now done with Lot, and Lot has been serving as sort of a foil to Abraham. Uh, Lottie's kind of served as like a bit of a contrast that draws our attention to important things about Abraham. Well, today we're going to move on from Lot and we're actually going to compare and contrast Abraham with Abimelech, with a pagan, not part of God's people. And then throughout this whole story, as Pastor Mike just read, the pagan Abimelech is presented pretty clearly as appearing to be and acting in this account more righteously than Abraham. And yet, he is outside of the covenant. He is not part of God's people. He's out. Abraham's in. And so I think that this could be a helpful study for us, as I think there is some identity confusion these days. There is some conversion confusion. Who is in? Who is out? Who are God's people? Who are not God's people? Meaning also, then, who are our people? And who are not? And what's the difference? Abimelech seems pretty good here. Abraham does not. Abimelech is not God's people. Abraham is. Why is that? 
Let's see. God preserves his promises and his people. So we have to know what those promises are and who those people are. That's our sermon. God preserves his promises and people. Let's see who they are, his people, how he preserves them. First point, we're going to see that God's people are sometimes pretty bad. But secondly, uh, and maybe surprisingly, after chapter 19, well, pagans are sometimes pretty good. That's strange. So what's the difference between these two groups? Point number three, God promises to preserve and purify his sometimes pretty bad people. And then finally, we're going to see that God's promises through his people then are the only hope for sometimes pretty good pagans. All right, so that's kind of what we're going to do. The badness of God's people, sometimes the seeming goodness of pagans, God pr promising to preserve his people, and then God's people as the only hope for the world. Right. Can we trust God uh, to keep his promises to us? Because I knew we would be short on time. Uh, I've never done this before. I had Pastor Mike read the text for us in the scripture reading section of the same, just a couple of minutes. So we've already read Genesis chapter 20. I hope you'll have it open in front of you because we're still going to work through it as we go. Um, but I'm just going to pray for us and we're going to jump right into the text. Um, so let me pray and then we're going to continue. Father, I am very thankful for this day. Father, every Sunday, the Lord's Day is such a wonderful gift to your people, where we get to gather and to be fed, where we get to worship, where we get to fellowship, Father, where we get to refocus and, and reorient our lives around you. Father, this is an especially good day, as we have the privilege of, of bringing in uh, new members. Father, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christians whom you have saved by your grace and then brought to us. Father, help us to understand better what that means, what it means uh, to be a Christian, and what the difference is between a Christian and those who are not. And yet, Father, even as your people, we so often struggle. Uh, like Abraham, here we, we falter and we fail. Father, encourage us this morning with this word uh, that you are faithful to do what you have said always. You are faithful to preserve and protect and to purify your people. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this word to teach us and, and to inform us. But more importantly, Father, use it to shape us and to change us. Father, use this to grow our love and affection for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, please help me now in the preaching of your word. I ask and I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, point number one. God's people are sometimes pretty bad. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to, don't panic, we're going to mostly observe the details of the story through the lens of the two main characters in our two first points, Abraham and Abimelech. And then we'll kind of briefly kind of apply at the end with our second two points. So most of our time on our first two points. Let's start with Abraham. Here's God's man standing in for, representing God's people for, for you. How is he portrayed here? Not so good. And this is the second time we see Abraham doing this exact not so good thing. If you want to look back to the second half of chapter 12, there we saw Abraham head down to Egypt. He tells his wife in verse 11 of chapter 12 that her beauty is risky. It's risky for him is the problem because they will want to marry her. Uh, the ancients, unlike us, actually understood that adultery was a terrible sin. It was a crime. And so Abraham tells his wife that she to tell everyone that she is his sister so that it may go well with him because of her. Pharaoh then hears of Sarah's beauty, takes her into his harem, and rewards Abraham richly. God afflicts Pharaoh with some sort of plague. The pagan then rebukes the Christian. What is this that you have done to me? Sarah is restored to Abraham, and they are sent away out of Egypt. And now here we are, 20-some years later, again, in the same situation. And the stories are so similar. There's even another one to come. In chapter 26, where Isaac does the same thing, like father, like son. But the stories are, are so similar that more critical liberal scholars will argue this must just be some sort of editorial error. It's just the same story mistakenly included multiple times because there's just no way Abraham would have done the same stupid, sinful thing twice. Ha, right? Liberal scholars don't understand human nature very well. Then. Uh, liberal scholars don't understand sin very well then uh, because liberal theology in general, and this is increasingly creeping into our churches, maintains that mankind is generally pretty good. 
You should go and get uh, a guy named J. Gresham Machen, an uh, old uh, pastor, scholar. He, he wrote a book in 1923 called Christianity and Liberalism. Very important book. Um, and it's quite relevant today to watch much of what is still going on these days. And, and Machen's basic argument is that Christian liberalism is not just another form of Christianity, but it's an entirely different religion altogether. And we need to hear that today because it's alive and well this almost hundred years later. Uh, we don't have time. Liberalism morphs into liberation theology, morphs into the social justice movement, and all the craziness that we see slipping into churches tonight uh, under the name Christian. That Machen would just say, hey, look, this is an entirely different religion. And that book, a hundred years ago, diagnoses this very, very well. Go read it. Uh, we need another Machen today. Uh, he writes this, related to sin and liberal theology. At the very root of the modern liberal movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. The consciousness of sin was formerly the starting point of all preaching, but today it is gone. Characteristic of the modern age, above all else, is a supreme confidence in human goodness. Now, I would love... To, to spend some time and trace some of that today as we see this develop and morph and we see the shift in focus from individuals to institutions, from sin to systems, but we don't have time one day. The point is that those writers who implicitly assume the goodness of mankind as individual cannot comprehend the repetition of Abraham's uh, repeated pretty badness in chapter 12 and now again in chapter 20. But scripture understands this. And we understand this. Um, how could he have repeated the same thing twice? Uh, how many of us have repeated the same sin again and again and again? So let's sort this out. Look at, look at verse 1. We start off. Abraham is journeying south. He's leaving where he's been. Why is he leaving? It doesn't say. We're not sure. Maybe it's related to chapter 19. Maybe it's somehow related to the destruction that we've seen of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not sure. But this is clearly an entirely different story from chapter 12. He doesn't head south to the Egyptians, but he heads south to the Philistines. He lies again there in verse 2 about his wife saying, She is my sister. And then Abimelech, not Pharaoh, takes Sarah, who would have been about 90 years old at this time, to be his wife. And Abimelech, we're told, is the king of Gerar. And that's what his name means. It's not necessarily his personal name. There are multiple Abimelechs in Scripture, so don't get confused. This is probably sort of like a, a royal title like Pharaoh, right? It could apply to multiple different individuals. So he's the Pharaoh. He is Abimelech. It literally means my father is king. We're going to come to him in a second. God deals with him starting in verse 3, and it is fascinating. But we've already read the whole story, so I want to skip ahead to Abraham. Abimelech is rightly upset about what Abraham has done. Look down at verse 9, and Abimelech says to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And look at Abraham's answer. I'm not sure this is appropriate or not, but Abraham's answer just made me think of all of my reading about Jerry Falwell this week. Um, I don't know all the details of the story, so I don't know what he's done or what he hasn't done, but I can speak to his response to all of them. And there's just been no humility, no repentance, uh, no brokenness, no sadness, no nothing but defiant denial. Um, and it's just, it's tragic because here's a figure that many in our country look to as a representative of the church, um, and all he does is, is deny and... Um, be stubborn, and it's, it's just, it's very off-putting um, to me. Um, so again, I don't know if he knows the Lord or not, but he, he's not acting like it right now. Um, he's acting pretty badly. And that's what Abraham does here. Abraham doesn't own, um, he doesn't apologize, there's no humility. He does what Adam does. He casts blame. He makes excuses. Look at verse 11. Abraham says, I did it because I thought. There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Excuses. 
Abraham lied. It doesn't matter if he told a half-truth. It's intent that matters. His intent was to deceive and mislead, and his intent behind that was to do it for his own self-protection at great risk to his wife. There are actually people that try to defend Abraham's actions here, and it's absurd, and I don't know how anyone can possibly do it. Uh, Calvin writes this, It is impossible to excuse Abraham's gross negligence in not calling to mind that he had once tempted God and that he would have had himself alone to blame if his wife had become the property of another man. Ephesians 5.25, Men, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? And gave himself up for her. Abraham gave up his wife for himself. That which was supposed to be most precious to him, that which he was supposed to most cherish and protect at all costs, at the cost of his own life. How similar, I didn't thought of this, how similar is what he's doing here to what Lot offered to do back in verse 8 in chapter 19? Pretty similar. Um, but what he is supposed to most cherish and protect at the cost of his own life, he callously gives up to another man. It's inexcusable. Calvin continues, Abraham makes the former favor divinely offered unto him as he is so far as he is able of almost no effect. He thought nothing of his wife's danger. Therefore, if we thoroughly weigh all things, he sinned through unbelief by attributing less than he ought to the providence of God. Whence also we are admonished how dangerous a thing it is to trust our own counsels. There's a lot of important things that you can get from God's word here. Get, if you get, man, take that away from Calvin's word there. Uh, it, it is a dangerous thing to trust our own counsel. Individuals, it is dangerous uh, to trust your own counsel. Here's why you need the church. Here's why you need godly counsel and people around you. Because our hearts are sick and deceitful. Matthew Henry writes, Mark Abraham's distrust of God, his undue care about life, his intent to deceive. He also threw temptation in the way of others. He caused affliction to them. He exposed himself and his wife to just rebukes and yet attempted an excuse. These things are written for our warning, not for us to imitate. God's people are sometimes pretty bad. Abraham has been regenerated and redeemed. He is a believer. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted righteous. We'll look at that more in a moment. But what here we see is the righteous behaving badly. And this is important for us to understand. Sometimes God's people, sometimes Christians, sometimes you and me do stupid, sinful things. And sometimes spectacularly so. You just can't argue with this. Right? Consider David, right? the man after God's own heart. Adultery, murder, terrible father. Consider Peter, denying the Lord that he loved. We generally stop there. Denying the Lord that he loved, restored graciously by the Lord that he loved, and then again later denying the Lord that he loved and the gospel that he loved in refusing to dine with the Gentiles. Consider Paul, like 1 Timothy 1.15. Memorize this verse. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And that was the foremost. Present tense, am. Paul, also the author of Romans 7.15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. 18 and 19. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's Paul. That's the greatest theologian to have ever lived. He saw Jesus Christ himself, and he too apparently was sometimes pretty bad. And I'm highlighting this first First of all, just because it's true, it's biblical, and we've all experienced it, and expectations are so very important. You need to be told what the Christian life is like and the battle that it is so that you'll be ready for it and then not shocked and dismayed and confused when you struggle. And second, I'm emphasizing this because I think there's some confusion about this. I think there is some confusion about what it really means to be a Christian and what determines whether one is or not. Christianity is not morality. 
It is not social activism or justice. A Christian is not someone who is pretty good and does some pretty good things. A Christian is someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins, but has been made alive together in Christ. By grace, they have been saved. A Christian is one who has been born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who then in response to God's initiating sovereign grace, then sees and hates that sin and turns from it. That's repentance. And then believes and clings to Christ. That's faith. And who, even after doing so, remains a sinner. Because it is not their goodness or their morality that saves them. And since it is God who saves them, and God's goal is to save them entirely, which means to totally transform them, to make them like Christ, perfectly righteous, uh, and, and we're clearly not, you know me well enough to know that, that then means that there are going to be times when God ordains and allows our sin to be exposed. Because there's a lot of it in our hearts. And there is a lot more of it than you think that it is. There is. Those hearts that are deceitful above all else. We are far more sinful than we know. God knows. And he loves us so much that he is going to do something about that sin that is so bad. And so often he lets it out. He reveals it so that he can deal with it. He exposes it so that we can be exposed to our own wretchedness and our utter neediness so that we will then turn to and cling to him all the more. We're going to look at that in more detail in the third point. But for now, it's just clear from this text that Christians are sometimes pretty bad. And there's a specific reason for that. We're going to talk more about it in a moment. But let's get to our second point, and then we'll circle back around to this. Let's look at Abimelech, and then we'll come back to Abraham. Point number two, pagans are sometimes pretty good. Look at Abimelech. He looks pretty good. I mean, relatively, of course, we'll get there. It doesn't start off so good as he takes Sarah in verse two. But this was sadly just kind of normal king behavior back then. That'd make it good, um, but it was the norm. Now look at verse three. I love Verse 3, Abraham has done this thing. God comes to Abraham and speaks to Abimelech in a dream. This is actually a pretty rare occurrence in Scripture. There are only a handful of dreams, 21 in all of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible. Half of them, 10 of them, here, very early in the book of Genesis, before we have any sort of written down word. And then we see less and less of them as we get more and more Scripture. And in only a few of those, already few dreams, does God himself actually specifically speak to the individual in the dream. And strangely, he actually speaks more to pagans through dreams than he does to his own people. Uh, Again, the point is, this doesn't happen much. It's, It's unique. It's interesting. And so when it does happen, since it's not the norm, we need to pay attention to it. When scripture emphasizes this, we need to try and sort and figure out why. And so God comes to this pagan king in a dream, and he speaks very clearly to him. And look at what God says. This is wonderful. I love this. Behold, you are a dead man. Stop there. Maybe we should incorporate this into our evangelistic strategy. What a great opening that is. What a biblically true statement. As Machen just said, Christian preaching used to start with this, with sin. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Combine that with 3.23, all have sinned, means that this declaration, behold, you are a dead man, is true of everyone. Everyone you pass on the street when you leave this place, every co-worker sitting around you or in front of you on Zoom right now, every family member, everyone in this room, apart from Christ, is a dead man. The gospel, the good news, that there is forgiveness and life offered in Christ only makes sense, is only actually good news if we first understand that we are dead and that all sin deserves death. We were all of us dead in our trespasses and sins. Everyone is the walking dead. Do we look at people around us like that? Do we look at them in light of their spiritual condition apart from Christ? Are we concerned about that? And are we doing something about that? I think we've largely lost this conviction today. We tend to, I think, just kind of look at all the pagans around us and think of them. Oh, you know, they're all 
pretty decent people for the most part, and that's good. They're taking stands for justice. They're doing all these good things. Pagans are sometimes pretty good, rightly understood. We're getting there. But we need to start with this. God's words, behold, pagan, you are a dead man. Abimelech would have rightly deserved death for the sin of adultery. Man, nobody believes that today, right? No one believes adultery is even a sin today. But it, like all sin not dealt with, is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. But Abimelech protests. Right? Look at verse 4. This is fascinating. Abimelech has not touched Sarah. And so he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent person? Stop there. Two interesting things to note. He doesn't say an innocent people. Sorry, he said, will you kill an innocent people? Notice that he doesn't say, will you kill me, an innocent person? And he is the one who would have sinned, but it says an innocent people. And it's even more interesting, if you're looking at the King James, the King James translates this, would you kill a righteous nation? The word that the ESV translate innocent in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word for righteous. And the word that the ESV translates people is the Hebrew word for nations. We saw it back in chapter 18, verse 8, where God says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. So first off, we have some sort of principle of representation here. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Headship. That's going to be really important. And second, this chapter has something to do then with Abraham's relationship with the nations. We saw that in the last chapter as well, as God wipes out an entire nation in his just judgment. There was a discussion, remember, of his justice before Sodom was destroyed, indicating that its destruction was just. And then here we see Abimelech also talking about justice. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so he goes on in verse 5. He rightly points out Abraham's deception. He told me she was his sister. And he says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. There's some pretty strong words there in the text. We have innocence slash righteousness. We have an integrity. Uh, maybe Abimelech's just wrong. Maybe he's lying. Nope. Look at verse 6. God affirms Abimelech's affirmation. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. And then God goes on to command Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham and warns him that if he does not, he will surely die. And whereas we saw Abraham respond badly with a making of excuses and a failure to own up to his sin, look at Abimelech's response. Look at verse 8. He immediately gathers everyone, shares what God has said, and they are very much afraid. Ironic. That's the same word, uh, noun, verse, verb, that we saw in verse 11, when Abraham claimed that there was no fear of God in this place. Well, here they are, same word, afraid. All right, so the great irony of Abraham's statement is that it is actually he who is the one who is fearing man rather than God in this instance. And so in verse 9, Abimelech calls to Abraham and says, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now what a line that is. Pagan, rebuking, Christian. Here's a great definition of, of sin in general. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And that is, that is Abraham, the Christian, who has done these ought not to be done things, these bad things to Abimelech, the pagan. Abraham then goes on to make his excuses doesn't earn up. He doesn't repent. Abimelech's response to Abraham's poor response, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. He then gives Abraham what would have been an absurd sum of money um, back then. He invites Abraham to stay on his land, and then he affirms Sarah's innocence in the whole affair to, to vindicate and to justify her in the eyes of others. Abimelech seems pretty good. Pagans are sometimes pretty good. Look, look at the whole chapter. If you took out verse 7, and then you took out verses 17 and 18. In other words, if you took out what God says about Abraham, and what God does on behalf of Abraham, and you just looked at the remaining 15 verses of this one chapter, 
Which of these men would you assume was God's man? Abimelech or Abraham? And I think if we're being honest, we'd probably say Abraham, right? If we don't know the whole story and all the context. Abimelech looks pretty good, and Abraham looks pretty bad. And thus, when our basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian is little more than morality, little more than looking pretty good and doing pretty good, then we're going to run into all kinds of problems. We are conversion confused, Christian confused. We are confused these days about what it means to be a Christian and what makes one a Christian. Abimelech looks pretty good and definitely comes across looking better than Abraham in this account. And this is sometimes going to be the case. Let's be, I mean, let's be honest. Pagans can do all kinds of good things. Pagans can be, feed the poor. Pagans can be COVID frontline heroes. Pagans can be civil rights activists. Pagans can do good, rightly understood. We need to be able to affirm this goodness that they are obviously able and capable and often doing, but then rightly define this goodness. Because we have to understand this goodness, this pagan goodness, in light of passages like Romans 3.12, that no one does good. Or Jesus' words in Mark 10, verse 18, no one is good except God alone. Calvin breaks it down like this in his Institutes. He says we must set forth a distinction. He says we have to set forth a distinction between earthly things and heavenly things. And he goes on, he writes, I call earthly things those which do not pertain to God or his kingdom to true justice, or to the blessedness of the future life, but which have their significance and relationship with with regard to the present life. I call heavenly things the pure knowledge of God, the nature of true righteousness, and the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom. The first class includes government, household management, all mechanical skills, and the liberal arts. In the second are the knowledge of God and of his will, and the rule by which we are confirm our lives to it, to conform our lives to it. So in the first class, what Calvin says is that pagans can do all kinds of good. In the second class, he says pagans can do no good. Because, Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Some will try and limit that verse. Go study it if you'd like. It's interesting. Uh, Augustine says that that cannot be done. It must apply universally. All that is not of faith is ultimately sin. That's why Augustine, and he wrote a lot about this, Augustine uh, referred to what he called as pagan virtues. The good that pagans sometimes do, he called these pagan virtues ultimately only splendid vices. Because there can be no true virtue without worship of the true God. There can be no true righteousness except that which is received from the one true God. And so Augustine goes on to say that we can rightly speak of virtue which is employed in service of human glory, a relative virtue, which again, let's be honest, it's better than no virtue. Uh, It's a virtue that makes someone less depraved, that's good, but still depraved. It's only a relative virtue when God requires real virtue, true virtue. It's only a relative righteousness when God requires a perfect righteousness. Because goodness must accord with some standard. There must be standard by which we determine and define what good is. True goodness, then, must accord with God's standard. And God's standard is Perfect. God's standard is that goodness is not determined just by action, but by intent. Not just by the external, but the heart. A deed, then, is only truly good in this sense if it is motivated first and foremost by a desire to please and honor the Lord. Anything else, then, is ultimately motivated by nothing more than a desire to please and honor the self. Pagans, then, are unable to do good according to this biblical standard. True good. And thus the relative good that they do, just using Augustine's terminology, is nothing more than a splendid vice, since it does not and it cannot proceed from faith. It is ultimately, then, sin, because it is done without any reference to God and his glory, but only self and its glory. And listen, church, that's the very heart and soul of sin. 
that separates and demands death. They turn away from God and the internal turn towards self. So yes, pagans are sometimes pretty good, if we rightly understand what I mean by good. They can do relative good, civic good, which sure is better than no good, but we have to be clear on this. We have to draw Calvin's distinction that it is not ultimate good, and thus it is not saving good. And thus the pagan, in doing that good, actually does nothing for their soul, does nothing to solve the ultimate problem of their separation from the God who alone is good, the God who alone is life, and thus remains ultimately just as damned as the not-so-good pagan. Because let's be clear, relative good saves no one. Earthly good saves no one. Christianity is not morality. Christianity is not activism. Thus, a Christian is not one who is pretty good and does some pretty good things. Often pagans are pretty good and do some pretty good things. And then apart from Christ, die condemned to suffer an eternity in hell. So our culture is increasingly trying to separate and divide and categorize everyone into identity groups. There's generally two. There's black or white, there's oppressor or oppressed, there's privileged or poor. We need to resist the pressure to buy into those categories. Don't uh, buy into the world's languages and definitions and classifications because Scripture already classifies and categorizes everyone into two groups, the righteous and the wicked, God's people and pagan people. We've just seen that often pagans are pretty good and sometimes God's people are pretty bad. So what's the deal then? What's the difference between these two groups? And, and why? Let's look at point number three. I'll apply these last two briefly, um, and then we'll, we'll be done. Number three, God preserves and purifies his sometimes pretty bad people. I said a moment ago that if you removed verses 7 and then 17 and 18, then Abimelech wins. Abimelech is better than Abraham. But you cannot remove verses 7 and 17 and 18 because they're the most important part. They are what God says about Abraham. And they are what God does on behalf of Abraham. And that's the difference between the righteous and the wicked, Christians and pagans. Not our relative goodness, but God's perfect goodness. Not our works, but God's grace. I said at the beginning that the whole point of this story was to remind and encourage God's people that he protects and preserves them. And that's what he does here for Sarah. Verse 6, he does not allow Sarah to be touched. Verse 16, Sarah is restored and vindicated. Praise God that he protects and preserves his people better than we do. Praise God that, uh, that he protects uh, Abraham's wife when Abraham fails to do it. God does not fail. But even more amazingly, God also preserves and protects Abraham. Even in his sin and his failure. And think about this. Uh, did you wonder about this? Did you notice this? Have you ever wondered this? Look at verse 6. God says to Abimelech, I did not let you touch her. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Are you tracking with me? What, what question does that raise? What about Abraham? We've seen Abraham sin all over this passage. You've seen your sin all over your life. God kept Abimelech from sinning against him, but not Abraham here, and often not us. Why is that? If God is perfectly good and perfectly sovereign, why does he allow, ordain even, his people to sin? Here's, here's, here, guys, here's why I'm just going to keep trying to shove John Newton down your throat. It was John Newton that I discovered about seven or eight years ago. It just He was this older, godly man that just poured out and exposed his heart and his sin and his self, even as an older, godly minister constantly writing about his struggles and his sin and his self. Look at what he writes. I'm going to give you more of this in the email Thursday. I'm going to give you a short snippet here. Here's what John Newton says about how does God allow or ordain sin in a believer's life? How can these things be, he writes, or why are they permitted since the Lord hates sin teaches his people to hate it and cry against it, and has promised to hear their prayers, how is it 
that they still go thus burdened. Surely, if he could not or would not overrule evil for good, he would not permit it to continue. But by these exercises, he teaches us more truly to know and feel the utter depravity and corruption of our whole nature, that we are indeed defiled in every part. His method of salvation is likewise hereby exceedingly endeared to us. We see that it is and must be of grace, holy of grace, and that the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness is and must be our all in all. You see, God allows Abraham's sin because he loves Abraham and because he's going to overrule the sin and the evil that remains in Abraham's heart for good. He is going to allow temporary evil for ultimate good. And God does the same thing for you and for me. God wants to show you your sin because he loves you. God will sometimes show others your sin because he loves you. Sin is always bad for you. And since love is seeking the good of the loved, God will always seek to expose the sin of his people, that sin which is bad for us, to bring about that which is good for us. And brothers and sisters, it is so kind when he does so. Because in so doing, he is purifying us. He is weaning us off of our reliance of self and of sin. He is repeatedly reminding us of our weakness and our depravity. And at the same time, he's, he's magnifying his power and his mercy. The more I can see how sinful, uh, sinful I actually am, the more I can then see how gracious God actually is. Because I may not see the true depths of my depravity. You don't see it. My wife sees it a little bit better than you do. and I see it a little bit better than I do. But I don't see it perfectly. God sees all of it, all of it, perfectly. He sees it, and he knows the utter depths of my depravity and my sin. And he still loves me. He still sends his son while I was yet a sinner to die for me. He is still faithful and good to me and good to Abraham here in this chapter. And it's that fact and it's the realization of the magnitude of my sin, but the greater magnitude of his mercy that then transforms me. It's not focusing on my own goodness and then trying real hard to be good. Anyone can do that. Pagans can do that. There are plenty of pagans who have done more relative good than I have. But it's seeing my lack of goodness and God's abundance of grace that then fuels and fires me to seek to be truly good in accordance with his standard. It's his grace that makes me good. Plus, if you don't have that grace, you just can't be good in any biblical sense of the term. Unlike the pagans, I'm no longer having to work to establish my goodness. The difference in the Christian is that the Christian knows that we don't have goodness. I have no righteousness. That's the whole point. The gospel is that God provides me the required righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ, the promised one, the one that God promises to Abraham, um, ultimately starting in Genesis 12 and Genesis 3, 15, the son, the seed, who is going to come and live and die and rise again in the place of his sinful people. That's the difference. And that alone is the difference between the Christian and the pagan, the righteous, and the wicked. It's not that we are good and they are bad. Uh, we are all of us not good. The Christian is the one who knows it. And because the Christian knows it by the grace of God, the Christian's mind is changed about the nature of sin and their own sinfulness and then turns and throws themselves on Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our goodness. Christ is the difference. The grace of God is the difference. Relative goodness or righteousness does not eternally matter. You have to have perfect righteousness to be saved. And it is only found in the perfectly righteous one, Jesus Christ, who gives and offers that perfect righteousness to all who come to him. So yes, sometimes Christians are pretty bad. But Christ is perfectly good. And Christians are in him. And again, let me just emphasize in case I can hear the emails and the complaints. This is not an excuse for us to go on sinning. By no means. 
Paul would say. Uh, we're, we're taking a realistic look at indwelling sin so that we'll have realistic expectations, but more importantly, we are looking at the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Grace abounds all the more. Not so that we can then stay in our sin, but so that seeing the glory of his grace, we are then motivated to flee from the sin and to cling to Christ and become more and more like him, more and more actually good and actually righteous. And it's a lifelong process. Abraham's about 100 years old here, and he's still learning it, that this gift of God's grace to progressively make us like Christ. And yet that's why this story is such good news for us. Abraham does everything he can to mess things up. He throws up all kinds of obstacles to the fulfillment of God's promises. And you have done the same thing. So, church, see how God protects and preserves his people. See how he fulfills his promises to his people in spite of the sin and the failures of his people. You cannot get in the way of God's promises. You cannot stop him from doing what he has promised to do. God has got his people. He's got you. He's in control. He is working in and through all things, even the stupid sin of his people. So trust this God who is this big and this good. God always protects and preserves his people. And if so, if you are in Christ, that then is a promise to and for you. And finally, then I'll just touch on number four. God's promises then through his people are the only hope for pagans. Abraham has been pretty bad. Abimelech has been pretty good. And yet, verse 4, Abraham is a prophet. First use of that word in the Bible. Abraham speaks for God on behalf of God, intercedes for man before God. So pretty good Abimelech, your only hope is sometimes pretty bad Abraham. Go to him, he will pray for you, and you shall live. This is really interesting. Abimelech's hope his life is dependent on and mediated through Abraham. Verse 17, look at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Closed wombs opened. What's the very next verse? 21.1. God opens Sarah's womb. God fulfills the promise that he made 24 years ago after protecting her and preserving her and purifying her sinful husband. This passage is clearly about life and death. And life and death we see here are in God's hands. And the life and death of the pagans is entirely dependent on their connection to God's man, to Abraham. Abraham is the one in the wrong. Yet Abimelech must still ask Abraham, God's chosen instrument of salvation to intercede for him. That's such an important truth that the church needs uh, today. Though Abraham had nearly brought death to Abimelech through his sin, he is still God's chosen means to bring him life and blessing. And so in important ways, Abraham prefigures Christ here as the true and better Abraham, the, the true mediator and intercessor through whom true life comes. But he also importantly prefigures us the church here. We are the only hope for the pagan world. Not our morality, not our activism, not our transforming the culture or ushering in the kingdom. Only Christ can do that. And he does that when he returns. That's not the job of the church. Our relative goodness is not the hope of the world. Christ's perfect righteousness is the only hope of the world. The perfect righteousness that comes only by grace through faith. The perfect righteousness that is only offered through the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. That's the hope of the world. And that's how we help the world. We are sometimes pretty bad. The world sometimes seems pretty good. But the world will be no different than Sodom in Genesis 19. We saw Lot's failure there. The world will be no different than Sodom in Genesis 19 if it does not hear the good news from us and by the grace of God repent and believe. That's the only hope for anyone. The promise of God, uh, the promise of forgiveness and life for all who believe in Jesus is the world's only hope. And here we see that he mediates that message to the pagan world 
through his sometimes not so good people. So, church, I mean, do what Abraham does in verse 17, church. Pray, love, and serve the God who has forgiven your badness and given you Christ's goodness. And then love and serve the world by telling them of the God who can forgive their badness, forgive also their relative goodness, which is nothing more than a splendid vice. And then give him Christ's perfect goodness. And in so doing, give them eternal life. Church, that's why we're here. Abraham doesn't look so good here, but he's God's man. And he's been declared righteousness, declared righteous by the grace of God. And that is the only hope for any of us. Let me stop there and let's, let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, I ask now that you would work through your word. We believe that your word is living and active. We believe that you work in the world uh, through your word, Lord. And so I ask now that you would do that. Um, pray that your words would abide in the hearts of your people. That you would encourage us with those words. That you would shape us and transform us. Father, I pray for anyone in here who, are, who is not part of your people, and that your word would be the, the instrument through which you bring them from death to life. Father, show them their sinfulness and show them for what it really is and how it is rejection of you and rebellion against you and evil and wickedness and deserves death. Show them that how there is eternal life and love and relationship offered in Jesus Christ. And I ask that you would grant them a repentance and faith. Father, you have been very good and gracious and kind to us. And Father, you have been very good and gracious and kind to me. Grow my, my family and this church, grow our love and affection for you. Father, help us to hope in your grace, not our own goodness, but I pray that that hope in your grace would then increasingly make us godly and make us holy and make us good um, so that we can be effective witnesses and lights uh, to this dark and dying world that desperately needs the gospel. Father, use us, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.